Yes, Lord, we are the witnesses of these things. We were there when you taught. We were there when you healed. And always, Lord, you loved, even to the point of death. But then on the third day, you rose and you opened our minds to understand the scriptures and you said you would send us a helper and you told us and then you ascended into heaven yes Lord we are the witnesses of these things and when the day of Pentecost came we were all together in one place suddenly a sound came from heaven like the rush of a mighty wind and it filled the house where we were sitting tongues of fire appeared and rested on each of us we were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages and everyone who heard could understand no matter where they were from and so Lord just as you have commanded we go and we baptize yes we baptize in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit yes we go and we teach and we heal and always Lord we love even the least of these until that day when you return and we too shall be risen indeed With the entrance of sin and death into the world, shortly after its creation, God had promised redemption. Over the millennia since, he had been preparing people for his ultimate rescue plan. He had cultivated a people, the descendants of Abraham known as the Israelites, to be his witnesses and priests to the world. Although they did not get it right most of the time, God did not abandon them or his plan. Through them, God brought into the world his own son, Jesus, who through his sacrificial death on a cross brought about the redemption of the world. Yet that is not the end of this story. For Jesus comes back to life revealing truth to his disciples and followers and helping them to see how his death and resurrection are the answer to the broken relationship humanity has had with God. He promises to always be with them by sending his Holy Spirit to guide and empower them, making them his ambassadors to the world as they tell people about him. Ten days later, the Holy Spirit descends and fills the disciples. They begin praising God in languages they do not know and are filled with courage, boldness, and wisdom. Peter speaks to the gathering crowd, telling them how all this is a direct result of Jesus, God's holy and beloved Son, coming to earth out of his immense love for the redemption of all. 
that day, 3,000 people hear Peter's words and choose to follow Jesus. It is only the beginning. With the Holy Spirit working in and through them, the members of what soon becomes the early church spread the message of Jesus throughout Jerusalem. When persecution comes, many leave for surrounding areas. But as they go, they tell people about Jesus. More and more people hear of Jesus, and the church continues to grow. Others see the loving actions of the followers of Jesus, and their generosity and goodwill attracts more people. Still others witness miraculous healings done by the Holy Spirit through the disciples, and they want to know about this powerful God. People outside the Jewish faith are drawn in. And the beginning of God's final promise to Abraham begins to come true. The world is blessed as those once seen as being outside of God's family are brought into it. However, this new church of believers will also face suffering and persecutions. Among these persecutors is a man named Saul. But when Jesus reveals himself to Saul one day, Saul's heart does a miraculous turn, and he believes. He changes his name to Paul and becomes one of the most outspoken and boldest messengers of Jesus the world has known. Paul travels from city to city, establishing new churches throughout the Roman Empire. This former persecutor of the church faces terrible persecution and even death, but he does not waver in his determination. Even while in prison and facing his own death, he continues to write letters to encourage church leaders and friends. As the Roman Empire cracks down on the followers of Jesus, torturing and even killing them, the church only continues to grow. The loving examples of Christians, especially in times of famine and plague, pull people in like a magnet Sacred writings and scriptures from both before and after Jesus' time are circulated and eventually assembled into what comes to be called the Bible. Fast forward to today. God is still present with us. His Holy Spirit moves in and through us, continually calling each of us back to his teachings. He desires to covenant with us as his people once more, to show us how we can be powerful examples of his kingdom who embody his love and draw others into his family. He calls us to be agents of change in this world, not through violence, manipulation, or coercion, but through loving, humble service. We are still called to be his witnesses to the world, a nation of priests, who lead others into his arms. God's family tree 
is wide and strong enough for all of humanity, its limbs connecting each of us to each other and ultimately to God himself. And one day, we shall all be made new in the full redemption of Jesus' sacrifice. One day, this broken and sin-corrupted world will fall away, and we will begin life anew as humanity has not known it since before the fall. Good morning, Woodland Hills Church. If you thought today was a happy day, and it is, if you know the Lord and are enjoying his love and in his presence, it's a happy day. But when that day comes, that's going to be happy day on steroids, folks. And it's a day that will never end, praise God. It will go on forever and ever and ever. Oh, happy day. So we're uh, going through the series, Forest Through the Trees. I'm always amazed at the ability of Teresa in writing this narrative to cover so much ground so thoroughly and so succinctly. Um, she has a gift of succinctness, a gift that I lack. She covers so much and so little, and I cover so little with so much. It's just uh, not fair. But So the job here is for the narrative lays out the big picture of this segment of the story that we're talking about, and then I zero in each week on one or two areas that I think are most pertinent to us, how we find ourselves in the story. How does our story get reflected in that story? So we're talking about the church. What is the nature of the church, the calling of the church? What's the church supposed to be? A lot of people have a lot of funky ideas about that, most of them involving a building. A church is a building you go to, and we're going to see that that is not at all the case. Let me start by sharing this. I, I've shared parts of this before, but um, you know, the church I was first saved in, I found Christ. Uh, at the age of 17 in this Holiness Pentecostal church. Um, and I really did meet Christ there in some powerful ways. And I thank God for the way he used uh, that church to begin my kingdom walk. I'm also really glad I didn't stay in it. <laughs> but, um, see, it was uh, a group that had some interesting, unusual beliefs. Uh, it, it baptized a certain way. It just had a lot of distinctive things. And, and we believe that... that only those people who shared our particular beliefs were saved. All the other Christians, which is the vast, vast, vast majority, were not saved. And that put a pressure on us to sort of prove that we were the only truly righteous folks by being more godly than everybody else. So we talked a lot about godliness. We were very interested in being godly, walking the walk, the godly life. And what we meant by that was well, we had a lot of rules. Uh, I know a lot of you come from legalistic backgrounds, but I, I would put my, my background up against yours. I, let's have a contest here. Who can out-legalize who? I think I would win. This group, this group, I mean, way beyond the usual, you know, don't drink, don't, don't, don't smoke or chew or go with girls who do, and way beyond the, you know, don't drink or don't go to movies and don't dance. You know, that's minor league stuff. Man, we were in the majors. We, uh, you know, our, our women, they, they, they could never cut their hair from some Bible verse that someone found. They, no one could cut their hair. Uh, so they had the hair going on the ground, uh, but they usually wore up in real big buns. Um, and you spot these ladies around town because they have the bun ladies. They get, they go, it goes real high. Uh, then they, they could never wear any makeup, and, and they couldn't uh, wear any jewelry, and they had to always wear dresses, couldn't wear pants, which made uh, going out sledding in January fairly difficult for them. So they put on these things that look like pants underneath them, but they wouldn't call them pants. 
uh, and apparently God didn't notice the uh, inconsistency there. But um, so they always wore dresses, and the dresses had to go over their knees, and the sleeves had to go over their elbows. Uh, it was wild. And the guys, we couldn't have long hair. We're supposed to have short hair, and the hair had to go above the ear. Or in my case, it couldn't be more than two feet above my head. I, I kind of pressed it down. I came into this church with a giant afro, and they made me kind of cut it down into a littler ball. Um, I didn't have trouble with uh, you know going down. It was going up. Uh, but um, guys couldn't have any facial hair, even though Jesus did. But uh, for some reason, they told us it was a sign of rebellion or something like that. And uh, guys couldn't wear dresses. That was a bummer for me. We couldn't, you know. So it was just a, a, a lot of rules. I mean, just we, we couldn't go to bowling alleys. And we weren't supposed to, guys weren't supposed to wear shorts. I love this one. Because there's a Bible verse that says, God delights not in the legs of a man. King James Version. Um, I doubt that's what that verse is talking about. <laughs> but we don't want to cause God to lust or something by wearing pants. He can't think he's wearing pants. Um, no, it's just, so it, just a lot of this kind of stuff. Couldn't go to ball games. Um, but we thought we were godly. This is what it was to be godly. Godly. A peculiar people we were. Now, the thing is, uh, as I showed last week, when you look at the New Testament, we find that the word godly it means godlike. You're like God. You have God's characteristics. Uh, but in the New Testament, instead of finding a bunch of particular rules, we have general principles of what it is to live a godly life. But most fundamentally, to be godly is to be godlike, and to be godlike is to imitate the cross. We find out what God is most like on the cross, as I shared last week. And if you weren't here last week, by the way, I would encourage you to get that message. It's a really a, a foundational message for uh, our identity as a church here at Woodland Hills Church. Um, Paul says this in Ephesians 5, and it really sums up the whole kingdom life. Imitate God. The Greek word there is mimetai. It means to mimic. Uh, mimic God. Do exactly what you see him doing. You say, well, how can we mimic God? God's invisible. Yeah, well, he became visible. And the place where his character most shines through, and everything about Jesus reveals God, but the, the essence of what Jesus reveals about God is most clearly expressed on the cross, which is why John defines God as love and then defines love by pointing us to the cross, 1 John 3.16. So you imitate God by imitating the cross, that other-oriented, self-sacrificial love that's on the cross. So Paul says, here's what it is to imitate God. You live in love. As Christ loved us and gave his life for us. That is what being godly is, most fundamentally. It's about imitating the love of God that's revealed on the cross. Uh, loving others the way God has loved you. And we are godly to the extent that we, our life conforms to that. And to the degree that it doesn't conform to that, we're not godly. I don't care how many rules you do, if that's not present, you're no closer to the kingdom than if you weren't doing the rules. Because it's not about the rules. It's about having the Abba Father's character replicated in us. And see, this takes us to the heart of the church. What it is to be the church? Um, we showed last week that everything in the Old Testament is pointing towards Jesus. Jesus says, all scripture is about me. And the center of what Jesus is about is, is revealed on the cross. That's the thread. That self-sacrificial love of God is the thread that weaves everything about Jesus' life and ministry, from his incarnation to his ascension. Everything is thematically summed up in the cross, even the resurrection. The meaning of the resurrection is summed up in the cross. Because the resurrection, it doesn't replace the cross as a center, it confirms the cross as a center. So whenever Paul talks about the resurrection power of God, it's the power to live a Christ-like life, a cross-like life. Okay, so it's all summed up in the cross. And so if all Scripture points to Jesus, and Jesus is centered on the cross, then all Scripture points to the cross. 
And so what we said last week is that, that the, the, the covenant of the Old Testament, all those failures, they're in various ways drawing us closer to the cross. They point towards the cross where God's covenant with humanity is finally fulfilled. Jesus fulfills God's side as being fully God. He fulfills uh, God's side of the covenant. And as fully human, he fu- he's the first one to fulfill the human side of the covenant. So the Old Testament points forward to Christ. The New Testament now reflects Christ on the cross. The Old Testament is moving towards the cross, and now the New Testament, everything in the New Testament, the kingdom of God and the church, which is to manifest the kingdom of God and advance the kingdom of God, it's all about the cross. We're to manifest the cross. And so you find that woven throughout the, the, the New Testament is this theme about the cross. The cross is the means by which we know God. The cross is the means by which God reconciles us to himself. And the cross as the sign of the life that we are called to participate in and to replicate. You see the center uh, centrality of the cross in the New Testament in a lot of different ways. One of the ways that clearly reveals it is, is this. That for Paul, to talk about the cross is to talk about the gospel. In fact, he'll use gospel and cross interchangeably. He's saying the same thing, whether it's the message of the cross or the gospel. The word gospel just means good news. But the whole good news for Paul is about the cross that is confirmed by the resurrection. So, for example, he says this in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And to preach the gospel not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Notice, notice that even in the way Paul preached, he wanted it to be uh, in a way that reflects the cross. Not being flashy and, and eloquence and all that kind of stuff. No, he wants to rely on the power of the cross, which is the power of self-sacrificial love and humility and service and coming under others. He wants to rely on that power even when he's presenting the gospel. He says, oh, I, 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 I preach not with eloquence and wisdom, uh, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross, now this is the gospel he preached, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who us are being saved, it is the power of God. And then he says, we preach Christ crucified. This is the gospel he preached. He earlier said we preach the gospel, here he says we preach Christ crucified. And before that he calls it the message of the cross. It's a stumbling block to Jews, as foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God, and Christ is the wisdom of God. It's talking about the crucified Christ, the cross. It's, it's the power of God, the wisdom of God. Notice this, just incidentally, that when Paul thinks about the power of God, he thinks about the crucified Christ, the cross. The crucified Christ is the power of God to us. Now, what's amazing is that throughout most of church history, since the 5th century for sure, the vast majority of theologians, and yet today, and the vast majority of people, and yet today, when they think about the power of God, or the sovereignty of God, they don't think about the cross. They think about the kind of power Caesar would have, a king would have, an Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of control power. If I had a nickel for every time I've been accused of denying uh, that God's omnipotent or sovereign because I don't believe he controls everything, I'd be a very rich man. You don't believe you have a hold of the sovereignty of God. What they mean is you don't hold that to the control of God. Well, no, because when you talk about power, we shouldn't be modeling God's power on, on, on what we would do with power if we were in charge or what Caesar would do or what, what human rulers have done throughout history. No, God's not like a giant Caesar. God is like Jesus Christ crucified. And, and we find out what God's power looks like 
by looking to the cross. When God flexes his omnipotent biceps, it doesn't look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. It looks like Jesus Christ crucified. That is the power of God. That is the wisdom of God. It looks foolish. It looks weak. It looks vulnerable to the, to the, to the natural eye. But what Paul sees and what we've got to see by faith is that that is the power of God. God rules not by, by controlling, but he rules by the power of his self-sacrificial love. It's the power of, of pouring himself out. The power of coming under others. The power of dying for his enemies. The power of being beautiful. He, he, he draws the world with his beauty. And that's why he uses wisdom. If you were just using power to control everything, you don't need any wisdom. I don't need any wisdom to wiggle my finger. No, no wisdom there. Uh, if you control it, you need any wisdom. But if you're dealing with free agents, you need a lot of wisdom. And so God rules with this, this kind of power that's revealed on the cross and the, and the kind of wisdom that's revealed on the cross. Uh, and this is the whole gospel for Paul. He had, the whole thing is summed up in Christ crucified. That's why he uses the terms interchangeably. It's why in Philippians 3, he says this. He says, as I've often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, he's not talking about the cross, the wooden cross, 20 years earlier where Jesus was crucified. He's talking about opponents in his day, people who uh, resisted his ministry and resisted and opposed the gospel. Paul says they're opponents of the cross. Why? Because what he was all about was the cross. The message was the cross. And so, folks, today, if we're going to be preaching the message Paul preached, it's always got to be about the cross. We've got one message. This is what we rally around. We've got one message. This is what we have in common, or we ought to have in common. This is what we stand for. This is the the, the distinctive thing that sets us apart. It is that we proclaim with our life and proclaim with our words that the cross tells us everything we need to know about God. Uh, The cross tells us everything we need to know about ourselves. Uh, The cross reveals the kind of love that God has for every person on this planet. The cross reveals the kind of power that we're to trust to transform the world. That is it right there. The the cross encompasses all those things, and that's what our life is about. That's the gospel that we're to proclaim with our life and with our words, and that we're to believe what God is like, what we are like, what others are like, how we are loved, how they are loved, what, what God is doing in this world, praise God. We have to take great care, great care, not to ever let that gospel get mixed up with other junk with other stuff, with other agendas. Look, we've all got uh, opinions and, and agendas and plans and ideas and whatever. Fine. Uh, but never should we fuse those things with the, the, the cross. This is the one message that we've got. The whole history of the church, especially since the fourth century, has been a history of humans mixing up the purity of the cross with other junk. Like their ideas about what power is. And just subverts the beauty of the gospel. Or the cross gets mixed up with, with, with some leader's political opinions. Or gets mixed up with someone's self-help ideas. Or gets mixed up with somebody's end times uh, conspiracy theories. You know, the church stands for a million different things. And it's all stuff that's other than the cross. Or it's at least all fused up with stuff other than the cross. No, we've got to keep the message of the cross. The cross defining God, us, other people, the planet, the world, the agenda, what the kingdom's all about. Uh, we have to keep that apart and keep it distinct. Because it's all involved there. We preach the cross. We live the cross. We breathe the cross. We proclaim the cross. uh, We demonstrate the cross. We invite others to share in the cross. It's the cross, the cross, the cross, the cross, the cross. It's all there. That's why Paul, he could say, I don't know anything else among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I only know one thing. Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's all you need to know. Everything else is just pointing towards that and reflecting it. Now you might think, well, gosh, that's, 
You know, that sounds very theological. You're a theologian, so no wonder you, you like this theological stuff. But the gospel needs to be practical. Come on, we need practical help on, on stuff. We need some of those self-help skills. We need, we need some help in our marriages and our neighborhoods and resolving conflicts and, and dealing with depression and things like that. And I'm not against self-help skills. I'm, but see, we, here's the thing. Uh, the, the, the cross is a profound theological truth. But it's also profoundly practical, the most profound practical truth. We don't need to supplement the, the gospel of the cross to make it practical. It is inherently practical. Look, look at this passage in, in, uh, in Colossians. This is profound theology, and this is profoundly practical. He says, God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, Christ. And through him, all of his fullness, God put all of his eggs in this basket, so should we. Uh, he, 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 everything that made God God. Was, was in him. Christ was fully God. That's why imitating him is to imitate God. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. Everyone say all things. All Whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Look at this. This is profound theology here. And it's also profoundly practical. The cross is the means by which God is bringing harmony to all things. In principle, it's already been done. It just needs to be manifested. God reconciles all things in heaven and all things on earth. God reconciles all things past, present, and future. All things individually and socially and psychologically and biologically and metaphysically and philosophically. All things are reconciled through the cross. The cross is the center of everything. The harmonizer of everything. The peace bringer of everything. Brings all into harmony. All right? Now, every problem that we have, you want to get practical? That's profound theology, but let's get practical. Every personal conflict or interpersonal conflict you have, all the stuff that we have to deal with, it all is, if you think about this, follow me here, it's all the result of something not being reconciled. Yeah, you're, you're, you're not reconciled with yourself or with God or with others or with the planet. There's something that's misaligned. Something's not, not in congruity. All problems are essentially this. Take your personal problems, for example. You, you know, maybe you deal with depression, you deal with anxiety, you deal with, with despair, you deal with bondages in your life, you deal with, with uh, shame, you know, or you deal with a sense of emptiness. Now, look, at we're born in a physical world that is physically screwed up, and sometimes our chemicals get screwed up, and our bodies get screwed up, and our genes are screwed up, and those things you just got to treat. I mean, we have power to heal, and we pray for those things, and there's no shame in taking medications to get the things balanced. So you do what you can do there. But that aside... All other things being equal. You see, all, all of our issues are the result of there being, uh, being a conflict. If I truly believe that Christ reconciles all things, if I truly embrace and internalize that the cross reveals God's love for me, and if I truly love myself as I am in the cross, all right, apart from all the things, all the ways I fall short, I know that I'm loved with this infinite love revealed on the cross. If I really internalize that, well then see folks, that brings a joy into my life that's going to confront that depression. And it brings a peace into my life. As I'm reconciled with God, I'm reconciled with myself. I accept myself in the midst of all my imperfections. And it brings a peace that begins to push aside the anxiety. And it brings a power that begins to give me a power over the bondages in my life. And it brings a fullness of life that begins to uh, confront the emptiness that I feel on the inside. And it fills me with a love that casts out all fear, praise God. Because perfect love casts out all fear, praise God. It, the, it, it brings a harmony to us when, when, to the degree that we internalize the cross in our lives. There's a harmony there because we're just manifesting what's already true. All things have been reconciled in Christ. 
So with our marriages, so with with our neighborhoods, and and so on and so on. Yes, it's profoundly practical, but folks, I mean, it's profoundly theological, but it's also profoundly practical. Uh, It's the solution, in principle, it's the solution to everything. Uh, It's God's remedy for everything. We just have to apply it to our life. Because it's the cross that has the power to heal all of our our wounds and, and, and to mend all of our scars and to uh, uh, resolve all of our conflicts. It's the cross, praise God, that's got the power to alleviate our pain and to fill our emptiness and to remove all regrets, no regrets in the kingdom. The cross has the power to transform our ugliness and to free us from bondages It sets the captives free, praise God. It has the power to abolish all despair and destroy the power of fear. It has the power to vanquish all of our sins, praise God. As far as the east is from the west, he's cast our sins from us because of the cross. And therefore, it has the power to remove all shame in our life. As we can accept ourselves as we are accepted in the beloved, hallelujah. Folks, our healing is found in the cross. And our salvation is found in the cross. This is why it's the gospel. Our transformation is found in the cross. Our liberation is found in the cross. Our deliverance is found in the cross. Hallelujah. Our power is found in the cross. Our joy is found in the cross. Our peace is found in the cross. Our identity is found in the cross. Our righteousness before God is found in the cross. Our holiness and being blameless is found in the cross. Our God is found in the cross. Our revelation is found in the cross. The church is defined by the cross. Our destiny is in the cross. It's all about the cross, the cross, the cross, the cross, the cross. Am I getting this across? (laughs) It sums up everything right there, folks. It just sums up. That's This is what it's all about. It's just about applying it to our life. And so it's not surprising then, given the centrality of the cross for Jesus and the whole of Scripture and the gospel, that whenever the New Testament talks about being a disciple, what does it look like to be a disciple? If the cross isn't explicitly mentioned, it's in the context. It's all about being cross-like, living a a self-sacrificial life of outrageous generosity, pouring your life out on behalf of others the way God pours his life out on on our behalf. That sums up everything that needs to be said about discipleship. Jesus was the first truly faithful covenant partner, right? The first faithful human being, uh, as we shared last week. And so he's the prototype of what faithfulness looks like because he was the first one to manifest the character of his heavenly father. That self-sacrificial character. That's what the cross does. And so we are placed in Christ, as I said last week, and we participate in his righteousness, his, his faithfulness. And as we participate in his faithfulness, ignore whatever distractions on the screen, as we participate in his faithfulness, uh, we take on his character. And the resurrection releases the power to live a cruciform life. And, uh, and, and so it's all about, it's all about imitating Jesus. Dozens and dozens and dozens of verses I could share here about the call to imitate Jesus. Those who abide in him must live as he lived, First uh, John says. Here's a passage, it's, it's, it's Romans, or Hebrews chapter 12. He says, now let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. There is a race that's marked out there. Follow the markers. And do that by fixing our eyes on Jesus. The pioneer, pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Just note there that to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus is to keep your eyes fixed on the crucified Jesus. That's how it always is throughout the New Testament. Christ is the crucified Christ. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. He's talking here. This author's talking to Christians who are facing persecution. Severe persecution. In the early church, we know that these folks were fed to lions. 
had their families, their kids fed to lions, or sometimes they were impaled on post and tarred and set on fire. Nero did that to some of the Christians. Um, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was a terrible thing, and they're facing this, the prospect of this happening. So the author encourages them by saying, don't lose heart, don't lose heart, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. You may go through some terrible, terrible suffering, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. He is the pioneer of our faith. Pioneer because he went out ahead of us, you see. He was the first one to be faithful to God, and now we, by the power of God, are running that same race. We're, we're, we're looking like him. He's our pioneer, and he's our perfecter, because as we, as we follow his footsteps, uh, we are transformed more and more into the likeness of the crucified Christ. We, we more and more take on the character of God's self-sacrificial love. He's a pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And the, the race that we're to run is the race that he ran. The markers are the markers that he ran going up to Golgotha, the Calvary, being crucified. And, uh, and he did it for the joy that was set before him. Knowing that on the other side of that cross is resurrection. Uh, knowing that on the other side of that cross is the liberation of human beings. Jesus Christ, for the joy set before him, he endured that suffering. So also, we are to know that in this present world, we're told we will suffer. We're born in a, in a war zone, born in a conflicted place, and, and uh, uh, we're going to suffer. It, it, sacrificing, it, it, we have to crucify our fallen nature to do it. Um, but we're to know that this is the way towards eternal life. This is what eternal life looks like. This is the way that leads to resurrection. This is the way that leads to glory. And Paul says that the glory that God has in store for those who love him can't even be compared to the sufferings of this present world, praise God. So for the joy set before us, we're to, we're to take up the cross and follow him and live as he lived and manifest the character of God. Over and over again, this is what it means to be a disciple. This is what it is to be the church. Uh, to be a disciple is to be conformed to the image of the crucified Christ. And the church, then, is the collective body of those who look like the crucified Christ. And that's what it is to be the church. That's why Paul said, as I shared earlier in Ephesians 5, um, imitate God. It all comes down to this. Imitate God, live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. Uh, just do what God does. Do what God does. We're, we're to be his body, right? The body of Christ. And so we do what he did in his first earthly body. But we do it with our eyes fixed on the cross. Uh, he says, live in love. Our job is to just love others the way God has loved us. It's that simple. As he poured himself out for us, we pour ourselves out for others. As he served the fallen world by giving up his life, we are to serve the fallen world by giving up our life and our finances and our time. And, and, and to, to be moving out of the self-centered, narcissistic society that we live in, uh, but to rather be moving into conformity with Christ. Um, we're to think about others the way God thinks about us, as revealed on the cross. That's why I always tell folks, uh, we're allowed one opinion about people. Unless they've invited you in on their life to give a commentary because they need your help. If you don't know them and aren't in a covenant relationship with them, then you're allowed one opinion about people, and that is, you agree with God that they're worth dying for. That's it. That's the only opinion we're allowed. Um, I challenge you to, to, to maintain that mindset. Uh, you, if you do that seriously, I guarantee you that by the time today is over, you'll probably have confronted at least a dozen and maybe a hundred other opinions that pop up in your head. If you can stay awake and notice it, our, our, our fallen brains are opinion-popping judgmental machines. We eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you commit to having one opinion, that's that, 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 that person and that person and that person is worth God dying for, you'll be confronting all these judgments in your brain. I was at the, the club the other day. I'm trying to get back in shape, so I was at the club. And as I'm there, I all of a sudden, and I'm trying to practice this, you know, one opinion. I'm only allowed one opinion. Every other opinion is an act of disobedience. Well, man, was I disobeying God. 
Look at that person. What, that person? what kind of address is that? What are you trying to prove? Okay, we notice you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All this garbage. It's like, shut up, brain. I got to answer to him. You're going to get me in trouble. You know, every one of those is an act of a rebellion against God. I'm allowed one opinion. And so whatever you see, whether you agree with it or not, whatever appears, it doesn't matter. Your one opinion is that they have unsurpassable worth. And our job is to reflect that unsurpassable worth by how we think about them, how we speak about them, how we speak to them, how we interact with them. And we're to live in that kind of love. As God does to us, we're to live in that kind of love. The word there literally means to walk. It's a process. Um, it means that there's no off button to this command, to live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. There's no off button. We can never take a break from this. That's why I always say here that the criteria to decide, to help you to discern whether it's the right time to love like Christ loves, the criteria is to ask yourself the question, are you alive? And so if you have any brain activity at all, any brain activity at all, ah, it must be the right time to love because you're still alive. Check, ask yourself, do I have any breath? Am I breathing? Oh, I guess I am. It's the right time to love uh, the way God, Christ loves you. Uh, do you have a heartbeat? Ah, must be the time to love the way Christ loves me. Amen. If you're alive, then the command applies. If you're alive, the command applies. <laughs> Hallelujah. It's, which means, you guys, since Christ loved us while we were yet enemies, it, it means it doesn't matter who it is you're looking at or who it is you're talking about. It doesn't matter whether they're holding a bouquet of flowers for you or holding a gun for you. Uh, it doesn't matter because the criteria is not about them, whether they deserve it or not. The criteria is about you. Are you alive? And your call is to live out this kind of cruciform love. We are to love, Jesus says, like the Father causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall. The sun doesn't pick and choose who it shines on. It shines on the just and the unjust. And the rain doesn't pick and choose who it's going to fall on. It falls on everybody, just and unjust, faithful and unfaithful. So also we are to love, Jesus says, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. We love indiscriminately. We love without choice. We love without qualification. We love without picking and choosing. We love regardless of what is there in front of us. We are just called to love, and love always looks like the cross. Always looks like the cross. Sacrificing to ascribe worth to others at cost to ourself. The church is to look like a giant Jesus, a giant crucified Jesus. Now, here's the thing, folks. Um, for the first three centuries of the church, did that pretty well. In fact, they, they were known as a group that, the way that they grew was largely by their acts of self-sacrificial love. The early church, you know, when plagues would hit, and back in those days, man, plagues could wipe out most of an entire town. They didn't have it, know what caused them. Uh, and, and when plagues would hit, everybody would run uh, and leave the sick behind. Even the doctors would run and leave the sick behind. But the Christians would run to the sick. They'd run into those cities. And they would care for those folks, even though they didn't know them. And sometimes they would get infected and die. But they knew that that's what they signed up for. This is what this is all about. If, if the dying manifests the love of God in the process, well, then that's a good death. That's a good death. And they, they, they rejoiced in that. Um, and, and that's how the church, even though it was under persecution, becoming a Christian could result in you being fed to lions or burned alive. It grew incredibly because people saw that love. And they'd say, why are you doing this? And the folks would say, let me tell you about Jesus. And their life was the proof that Jesus is for real, as it's supposed to be. Jesus says they'll know that I'm for real by your love. Um, that's how it grew. Now, something terrible happened in the 4th and 5th century when Constantine gave the church all this political power, and the church foolishly accepted it as a gift from God when they should have rejected it as a temptation by the devil, like Jesus did back in Luke 4. And so once the church accepted that power, well, things really began to change. Now we don't have to suffer anymore. 
Now the resurrection got defined as God's triumph over suffering rather than as, as the empowerment to live in, in a cruciform way. God suffered so that we don't have to. Now we get to kill our enemies even though he told us that we're supposed to love them. Uh, everything got mixed up in the church very quickly went from looking like a Jesus to just the, the military of the culture, a religious version of what's already out there. And so it is today, folks. Ask the question, to what degree does the church look like uh, the, the cross? Bleeding out of love for all people at all times, regardless of what they think about it. Um, regardless of whether they agree with the lifestyle or not. To a large degree, you know, there's a, a book came out. Uh, several years ago, I think it was called Unchristian, where they just did all they had all these polls of what does the population think about Christians? Um, self-sacrificial love, humility, they weren't in the top hundred qualities that were listed. Uh, intolerance, arrogance, judgmentalism, self-righteousness. Those are the main things, the main ways that people viewed Christians. Uh, in fact, in terms of people groups, uh, Christians, uh, Jesus, they, they, they had people rate uh, what they thought about various individuals and groups, and Jesus was up towards the top, but Christians were really close to the bottom, just above prostitutes, um, and and just above or just below Congress. <laughs> uh, now I'm sure that <clears throat> I'm sure we're at least beating Congress right now, so we're moving up in the polls. There's good news. <laughs> Congress is a bigger loser than we are, but folks, this isn't saying much, <laughs> not at all. You guys, um, we're to be known by that self-sacrificial love. What's happened is that the church continues to preach the cross as something God does for us, but it's forgotten that the cross is also a call of the kind of life we're to live. Stop preaching that. Communion, stop being about, it's, it's a sign of the covenant, whereby we, we, we remember what the covenant's about. And, and it was supposed to be where we remember what God has done for us, but we also pledge, since the covenant involves two, we pledge then to live like this. Faith, rather than being a pledge in the New Testament, it's a pledge. It's a, I, I will trust you in what you did for me on Calvary, but you also pledge your trust to live in the power of God, to live in Calvary. But now faith becomes simply a belief that what God did for us is true. Just mere belief without any pledge of faithfulness at all. And so what we've got is a truncated, self-centered gospel. What's all about me? Jesus just makes my life a little nicer. Uh, Jesus is here to help me, uh, you know, get my best life now and all this kind of stuff. Folks, we've got to embrace the true gospel. And the true gospel is the one that says, pick up your cross and follow me. The true gospel is the one that says, imitate me. Do what I do. If I suffered, you're, you're going to suffer too. The true gospel is the one where God says, look, if you lose your life, you find it. If you want real love and real joy and real peace and, and to participate in the life of God that will reign forever, then move away from this self-centered kind of life, trying to grab it all for yourself. Die to yourself. Live for me and you're going to find life. That's the true gospel. And that's the gospel we're called to live and proclaim. The true gospel is the one that sees the cross as a reconciliation of all things. The cross defines God to us, us to us, us to other people, and the whole mission of, of God. That's the true gospel. I, I, I end with this question. Question and a, and, a, and a point. question is this. We've got to always ask ourselves this and, and ask it honestly. Ask the Holy Spirit to help us be honest. and Ask it maybe in relationship with others. Uh, that you're sharing life with and, and helping each other do the kingdom. The question is, how are you bleeding? How are you bleeding? Uh, how does your life reflect the love of the cross for others? Um, how, what, what don't you have that you would certainly have if you weren't a follower of Jesus? How is the, the place you live, or the car you drive, or the clothes you wear, or the time you spend, how is it different because you're a follower of Jesus? 
See, what all those polls have shown is that for the vast, vast, vast majority of professing Christians, the answer is nothing. It looks exactly as it would even if we weren't followers of Jesus. The only difference is a belief. Uh, and the belief only gets thought about when someone calls you on the phone and is doing an opinion poll. Um, folks, there ought to be a radical difference. Um, how much, how much of, our, of our time and resources, how much of who, who we are and what we have is spent on ourselves and our loved ones versus how much is given away towards others? And only God can lead us on that. There's not a, one, a percentage or anything that we can specify, but we've all got to be seeking God's will on this. Since all we have and all we are belongs to God, we're to submit it all to Abba Father. And, and whereas the culture only asks one question, do I want it and can I afford it? We're to ask a different question. Do you want it, Father? Do you want it? Is this, is this how I'm supposed to live? Is this where I'm supposed to live? Is this the house I'm supposed to have, the car I'm supposed to drive? Submit it all to him. And some he'll say, oh, I want you to enjoy that. And some he'll say, I want you to give that all away. That's what this Making Space campaign's about. As we're heading into this time of the year, which is consumerism on steroids, allegedly in celebration of the birth of Jesus, who taught us to live completely different from that. Uh, but as we head into this season, we're saying, you know, lay it all before Abba Father. And, and enjoy what he tells you to enjoy. Don't feel guilty about that. But be willing to sacrifice what he calls you to sacrifice so that now we can have other ministries and we can have training for, for uh, at-risk kids in the inner city and so on and so on. And the final word I'll just say is this. this. We don't do this on our own. We can't do this on our own, by our own power. This isn't a rally to go out and try harder sermon. We, Paul says that he shares how he lived a sacrificial life, moving out of comfort and convenience and lived this life of sacrifice. He says, that, he says that some people say that we're going out of our mind. Well, if we're going out of our mind, fine, that's for God. But if we're saying it's for you, talking to his audience here, because the love of Christ compels us, we're convinced that if one died, uh, that all, if one died for all, then all have died. And I can't unpack the profundity of that passage, but I just want us to notice this. It's the love of Christ that compelled him. The love of Christ compelled him. As he's living in the resurrection power of Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, the love of Christ compelled him. So this isn't something we're supposed to just do on our own effort, try harder. No, it's, it's something we're to do out of an overwhelming sense of the love that God has for us and the love that we have for God, you see. Um, and so we can't give what we don't have. And so if we're going to manifest Abba's character and love, we've got to get Abba's character and love. And so I encourage us. It's like this. You have to stop and get gas in your car every once in a while, right? Uh, you have to eat food every once in a while. Every while, otherwise, the system runs down. You, you, you run out of gas. So also, the, the, the engine of the kingdom of God only runs if you are getting fueled by God on a regular basis. To sit at his feet and to let him love you. I find, for me, the best way that works is... A, all the spiritual disciplines are about this, and, and getting involved in Christian service is one way to, to experience more deeply the love of God. A lot of people don't sense God is real because they're not doing anything. He only shows up when you're doing something. Okay, so get in the game, and that will help you experience the, the love of God that will compel you to further service. But I find Hebrews 12, the passage we read earlier, to be the, 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 the way that I best tap into the love of God. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Spend a date with Jesus where you make a time where you fix your eyes, not your physical eyes, but your spiritual eyes, what we would call our imagination, and see Jesus and hear Jesus and sense Jesus. And, he, and, and, and ha- let him say to you all the things he's already said about you in Scripture, but now you can see him saying it to you with your name, and, and you can see it in his eyes and let him hold you and hug you and enjoy you. Uh, the, the Christ who manifested that perfect love on Calvary is here with you, and it becomes concrete 
when we meet him in, our, in that inner sanctuary of our imagination. And I, I get a time where you just turn off the lights and, and put on some soft music and just close your eyes and ask the Spirit to help you meet Jesus and let him love on you and just drink, drink of that. As I see the Lord sing over me and dance over me and, and rejoice in me and, and he's ravished by, by, by my beauty that I have because of the cross, as I see him love little Greg, you know, as a kid, and he heals me and restores me, and, and that love, well, that love begins to compel me. It's like, I want to live for you. I, I, I want to I do, I want to have your character. I want to demonstrate your love to other people. And that's what moves you to spend differently and to live differently and to alter your lifestyle so that you have space to serve others. Uh, don't go out, we'll fall flat on our face if we do try to do this on our own. It's impossible. Uh, we need to be compelled by the love of God. Out of that love comes the kingdom. Hallelujah. Uh, all right, hallelujah. All right, I'm going to close in prayer and a little benediction that the Spirit will seal this on our hearts. And as I do, I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come up here. And if you have any need here uh, this morning, whether it's about this message or not, whether it's about something else, maybe you're here this morning and you're not a surrendered disciple to Jesus. Today's the day. Do it. Come up here and tell these folks you want to join the kingdom and uh, they'll explain to you what, the, what, what that's involved in, okay? So would you stand? Abba, Father, as we now are going to leave this place, I pray, we pray, Spirit, will you seal this message on our hearts? We are going to go out into a world where we will immediately have, on a spiritual level and through the media and every other way, a message to conform to a consumeristic, self-centered, narcissistic culture that's just about us. We're at the center of things. But Holy Spirit, will you empower us with the love of Christ to swim upstream in that culture and to be looking for opportunities to pour ourselves out on behalf of others. Uh, God, that we might individually and collectively look like a people who, who, are, who know that the cross is everything, who live and proclaim the message of the cross, who demonstrate God's self-sacrificial, other-oriented love to our neighbors, to our kids, to our spouses, uh, to our enemies, to all people at all times. Uh, God, may we gain a reputation in our neighborhoods that's very different from what uh, right now the church generally has. May they know us by our love. May they know us by our love, as we know you by your love. In Jesus' name, we pray. And all of God's kingdom people said, Go out and love with the love of the cross, you guys.